Ante Up is your poker magazine dedicated to the everyday player and their poker rooms. Pick up a free copy at your favorite poker room nationwide each month. But Ante Up is much more than a magazine. Visit AnteUpMagazine.com daily for breaking news and each week download our award-winning poker cast. Join us on our action-packed poker cruises to exotic destinations. Ante Up, it's your poker magazine. From the Anti-Up headquarters in Tampa Bay, Florida, it's the Anti-Up PokerCast. And now, here are two guys who think they know how to play poker, Chris Casenza and Scott Long. It's November 3rd, 2017. You're listening to the best poker cast on the internet. I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long. Are you actually home? I, I am home temporarily. <laughs> it's like a hub for you. You just stop there and you, you move on from there. You know, kiss the wife, pat, pat the cats, uh, do the laundry, and then get back on a plane. That's what I do. And dress up as a carrot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yes, so I, I'm home temporarily uh, this night. Uh, tonight, uh, I am flying off to Pearl River Resort for our Annie uh, Poker Tour Series, the Pearl River Poker Open, uh, which kicked off uh, last week with a very successful first event, more than 400 entries, very nice. Um, in a hundred thousand guaranteed event, and um, uh, the hundred dollar main event will start uh, tomorrow or today, whenever you're listening. Right. <laughs> Friday, right. Friday, November third, uh, and it'll have four flights. Uh, it's an eight hundred dollar buy-in, and the winner will appear on the January cover of Anti Up Magazine. So I will be there for the rest of the series, flying back here, uh, flying back home on Monday, and then flying back out on Thursday. <laughs> Where are you going on Thursday? Uh, back to uh, Ohio. Oh man, you're crazy. I know. And then, then I'll be home for a while. Don't worry about it. I'll start calling that. you Clooney. <laughs> our uh, our Louisiana ambassador and writer, uh, Captain Ron Hope, uh, called me this week. Said that uh, things are going great there, and he's going, and he's bringing like ten or fifteen people with him to that event. Yeah, I saw him. Uh, saw him posting on Facebook already that he had a uh, he had a good chip stack at one point, but I haven't seen him in the results yet. Yeah, so. so, but <laughs> he he always ends up cashing somewhere. He's such a good player. Absolutely, looking forward to that, and uh, and um, a couple of our, our cruise passengers are there as well too. I've heard from them already, so yeah, yeah. Uh, looking forward to seeing some folks. And uh, if that eight hundred hour buy buy in main event is a little much for you, uh, there's at least three more satellites for the main, depending on when you're listening to this show, uh, that can get you in for as little as ninety dollars. So, uh, for more information, visit antiupmagazine.com slash Pearl River, and then on next week's show, we will uh, talk about how that wonderful main event went. Yes. And maybe we'll have another item just like this next week, although I doubt it. But for now, we'll celebrate. Uh, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf has signed a law allowing for online wagering, making the Keystone State the fourth in the country to do so. In addition to poker, slots, uh, in addition to poker, uh, slots, table games, lottery, and daily fantasy sports are permitted online, with sports betting to be added if the federal ban on that is ever lifted. The law also allows 10 of the state's existing 12 casinos to open smaller satellite casinos, uh, though the effect on poker is expected to be limited as those satellite casinos are limited to 30 total table games. It's so weird because we just wrote a column about how online poker had joined forces. We talked about this a couple weeks ago with, or a few weeks ago with uh, Chris Christie, New Jersey, signing the – that let them uh, put their players and, and pool them together and stuff. And so we wrote something saying, hey, this is the start of it. You know, now the federal government may see this now as, hey, 
these guys are ganging up now to make then why not just do it and then boom just like that another state follows suit and allows online wagering so eventually they'll probably pool their players and then we'll have four states right in that little area too and there it's it'll grow just like anything else yeah, not just any state. Pennsylvania is by far the largest of the state. I mean, I don't know exact population, but I would imagine it's probably got the same population as the other three states combined. Yeah. So this is going to be pretty big. Now, it will also see how it plays out because um, the existing casinos will be first um, in on um, adding online gaming if they want. There's obviously a pretty hefty fee to pay for it, and... Uh, the taxation is is not favorable either as well. So um, it's possible that some or none of them will do it, although I would imagine most will. Um, and then after that, uh, there's still licenses left and they'll offer it to outside companies. So it would be interesting to see how that, that particular market uh, develops as well too. And um, But it's nice to have a big state. I mean, we would not be exciting right now if uh, it was Rhode Island to be the fourth right. state. <laughs> no offense to friends up in Rhode Island, but... Uh, but this is a big uh, this is a big deal because it's a big state. So hopefully that means something. Yes. All right, and then uh, Calvin Iyer recently posted a column uh, saying Israeli poker players are not fans of sites like the Hendon Mob, which post winnings from tournaments as it provides information to tax authorities in Israel uh, that he believes is misleading since buy-in, rebuys, and other expenses of being a poker pro aren't deducted. I found this a very fascinating column, so I'm interested in whether you found it fascinating or not. Um, I I find it fascinating uh, in that it, it focused on Israeli players. It's like, don't all players feel this way? I mean, I, you know, what I mean, it's 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 interesting to me that I think. Well, no, he did mention in there that um, some stuff that I didn't know, like uh, Great Britain doesn't right. tax uh, gambling winnings because it doesn't consider it. I forget the actual terminology, but it's very British. <laughs> um. So yeah, so not everybody uh, taxes, and um, and so there, it's also different on how you tax it too. So I mean, here in the states, it's a tax like anything else, you know, it's income. But um, but other places tax it differently depending on what they think it is. And as we all know, you know, there's a lot of confusion in government about what gambling is. You know, some places don't consider poker gambling. Some people do. Right. Um, uh, what are games of chances and what are games of skills? So, uh, so a lot of that I found, I found interesting as well too. Uh, but a couple of things that that um, piqued my interest in this one, I always find it interesting when people get upset that the tax man is going to get his cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, none of us like to pay taxes, right? But to say, hey, don't put my results on there because that means I'm going to have to pay the taxes that I'm supposed to be paying. That's not a good enough argument. For me. <laughs> you know, hey, you're not allowing uh, me to break the law. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Life was going great here. It's totally cheating my country here. Now I can't. So that that is not a very powerful argument, I think. And I think that was part of the argument trying to be made here. Um, um, and then the other part of it, I guess, is because it's misleading. He, he claims it's misleading because all this other stuff is, is not taken out. And all right, so I might. I might go with the buy-in and the rebuys. Uh, there's no way the Hendon mom should be taking out the cost of your flight to get there. <laughs> You're winning. So that's just not going to happen, right? Um, but that that is, again, it's almost a lazy response, I think, because if the tax man knocks on my door and says, Scott, hey, I saw you won uh, $47 at the uh, Andy Poker Tour event, and uh, we want our cut, 
And now it's incumbent on me to say, hey, all right, yeah, I won $47, but it cost me $20 to get in, and I rebought one, so that's $40, and uh, I, I bought a $10 meal there, so I actually lost $3. Exactly. So I mean, it's up. It, it's incumbent on the person to actually explain all this stuff, and it shouldn't be. I mean, it's it, it's almost a ridiculous assertion that uh, Hendon Mob and any of these other sites should should adjust it because somebody one doesn't want to pay taxes, and two is too lazy to actually explain to the taxing authorities what goes into that. I mean, that's the first thing I thought of when I when I read it because I mean, even our site we post results. I mean, I mean, we've gotten those emails too. People asking oh, us yeah. to take them down because they're going for a job interview, or I'm like, sorry, buddy, yeah. you played in a public tournament in a public event, and these results are recorded. You chose to play in this event. If if you chose to be a poker player and you want to hide that from your boss, that's on you, not me. Don't enter tournaments. Yeah. You know, and it, 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 I don't I mean, I don't understand that the taxing of all the countries and how they do it, but they've got to be able to if you're calling yourself a poker pro, then you've got to be able to write off your expenses of being a professional poker player and expenses are buy ins and, and rebuys. So I don't know. I, I don't I don't see how they can blame anybody in the media for their problems. Well, I mean, I mean, maybe there are taxing authorities don't care about that. They're like, hey, you won this. I don't care what it costs you to to get it. Um, and that's unfortunate, I guess. But again, that's not Hendon Mom's fault. Right. Right? It's just that's the world that you live in, that you've chosen to live in. Right. You've chosen to live in that country, and you've chosen to play poker either for a living or for fun. And therefore, you have to accept the uh, whatever the um, responsibilities that come with that. And not whine to somebody that you you want to keep that big win private. <laughs> Feel free to move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Again, it's it's freedom. You can you can live in a different country if you want, or you can uh, not play poker. Uh, there's two two easy solutions for you <laughs> right there. Or you can be on board and above board. I mean, and, and yeah. do what you need to do to play your taxes. Exactly. That's a third wonderful yeah. option as well. Too. So yeah, I, I was not a fan of that column. I thought it was really. Um, Really uh, snotty, I guess is nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, any updates? PokerRadius.com, the home of the Annie Up Group discussions on the internet, recently suffered a cyber attack. In order to resume service, it has set up a GoFundMe.com page. If any Annie Up fans would like to donate, details can be found on the Poker Radius Facebook page. We've added two more Annie Up Poker cruises to our 2018 schedule, including a summer sailing to Cuba. All passengers on this, all sailings get a commemorative coin souvenir uniquely designed for each sailing by thepokerdepot.com, a one-month membership to advanced poker training, and a quick reference poker odds card from thegamblingschool.com. For more information, visit com. Lots of dot-coms. Yeah. yeah, it's a dot-com world now. Dot-com world. Each week we spotlight a listener who emails us at podcast at anteupmagazine.com and if they haven't won something from us in the past year, just like we do with Call the Floor and Hand of the Week, we send them something cool. This comes from Al, I'm say Al Alzuri. He says, uh, I'm often asked to design tournament structures for charity poker events. The parameters are tough because the duration is limited, the field depth is unknown until the start, and since rebuys and add-ons are allowed, we don't have a full sense of what we're dealing with until a couple hours into the tourney. Still, I try to design structures that are deep enough and slow enough to satisfy serious players and keeps players from feeling like they're playing bingo. I try to start with at least 60 big blinds, and I keep my level increases gradual. My rule of thumb is to never double the blinds. 
This often means that I have to keep my level durations short, sometimes as short as 17 minutes. My good friend has a different perspective on this, and we debate this frequently. In his opinion, he would opt for longer levels, even if it means doubling, tripling, or quadrupling the blinds. In his view, it's all the same in the end. He'd rather not have to deal with frequent level changes and just let people play poker. What's a reasonable starting stack size? What are your thoughts on rebuys and add-ons? Do you prefer shorter levels with gentle increases or longer levels with sharp increases? Well, I think his friend said something really good here. It's all the same in the end. And this is something that we keep trying to preach to players anyhow. Take away from the whole charity thing for a minute. That it doesn't matter how many chips you get. It doesn't matter how long the levels are. And it doesn't matter what levels you skip or have in there. Uh, a, a tournament director can design a tournament to be over whenever he or she wants it to be over. So let's say you want to do a four-hour tournament and your players say, I need a million chips. All right, you give them a million chips, but the levels are going to be shorter and they're going to skip. And so <clears throat> so I think to some degree that's, um, that's something to keep in mind here is that uh, you really need to start with the time that you want to end, and then from there you can build out. And there are lots of good... Um, uh, Google program. You can Google uh, tournament calculators to figure that out. You plug in all the stuff, and it tells you exactly how to do it. So, yeah. uh, so I wouldn't worry about that. So, uh, but one of the things that I mentioned to Al is the the charity tournaments that I think are best are the ones um, that do a lot of opportunities for you to buy chips that go straight to the charity. Um, so. A couple things about that. One, he was trying to appeal to both the serious players and the um, the amateurs. And I really think you're kind of chasing uh, the dog up the tree here on trying to get serious players to play charity events. Um, it's just yeah. not what they yeah. want to do. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't spend a lot of time working on that. I would spend more time on, on designing something that would get those tweeners, I call them. You know, those players that don't mind playing charity events but don't really prefer it. So I would focus on them. Um, but, um, you know, so when you get into, like, uh, starting chips in that, um, you know, that the formula that I, I, I really like and I've seen done in a lot of tur uh, tournaments is you start with a modest amount of chips. Um, and of that money, that initial buy-in, some goes to the charity, but most goes to the, the house or the that, that's where the house gets paid, right? Right. The administrative fee. But then you immediately can do, you know, a couple of add-ons right away if you want to. One for the dealer and then a couple more to build your chip stack up. And then uh, unlimited rebuys for a certain amount of periods. You can buy more chips. And then a really, really generous uh, add-on at the end that really encourages people to, regardless of the chip stack, to, to dump a little bit more money in. And all that rebuy and add-on money goes straight to the charity. And that's how the charity makes the money on it. Um so if you could do that, because then the, then people have an idea what the prize pool is from the beginning, because they know most of that money and that initial buying doesn't go to the charity, and that that appeases those people in the tweeners, right? Mm -hmm. And then at that point, by doing all those different rebuys and add-ons, then players decide on their own how deep they want to play. You know, you're going to get those people that have never played poker before, but are you know there because it's supporting breast cancer, and uh, they're going to do like the minimum, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> and just have fun. And then you might be have somebody else there who says, "Hey, I want to. I want this to be a deep stack tournament for me." So just peels all twenties all day long. Um, so put it. Don't put it on you. Put it on the player to decide how deep they want to play. Yeah, when he says that, what's a reasonable starting stack size? I I just don't think that question can be answered because of what we just talked about. I mean, right. when when you say that 
you know, somebody wants to play a deep stack, we're just going to increase the blind structures anyway. So to me, I'm going to get to some of the questions he asked. I prefer longer levels. I, I don't really care. One, I think if, if you have short levels and you're constantly going up on the blinds, I think it slows the game down. It also ticks a lot of people off because one table didn't get the memo that it went up in blinds, and this one already went up in blinds. I'm like, hey, over there, they're still playing 25-50. We're at 1,500. And um, I would rather just be able to settle in for a good you know, 40 minutes or an hour playing at this level, knowing that at the end of that level, it's going to go up you know, significantly, and then I can plan accordingly rather than just every 10 minutes seeing another blind level and changing it. And it's like, then it's just like, you know, random bingo poker. I, I And I think I agree with you 100% with the, um, you know, don't worry about catering to the serious players because serious players are only playing charity events because they want to give to that charity. They're, and they, if they win, you know, like maybe there's a huge prize on top like we do with our local charity here. You and I uh, support, uh, they, they do the whole deep stack because they want to tie it to the nation and get there. Those are some pretty worthwhile things playing for. But if it's literally just a prize pool they're playing for, you're not going to get that many serious players anyway. Um, and if they're from Israel, they're not going to keep track of what they're paying for uh, their <laughs> stuff anyway. And, um, but I, I, I always want long. I would rather have longer levels and settle in, and then then play shorter levels and have to just keep constantly adjusting. And you know, we're we're there to have fun. And and the other thing too, I wanted to say was if. He wants it to be over by a certain time, or he has to have it over by a certain time. I think that he should make that part of the uh, instructions at the beginning of the tournament, or before you're, you know, if you're advertising it somewhere or something like that, or you let people know on your Facebook page or whatever, however you do it. The tournament will end at midnight. You know, if you say something like that, they'll know, hey, we're getting long blinds, but at the end of the night, something's going to happen, you know, yeah. or whatever. And then if, if you uh, prepare them for that beforehand, then they really can't complain because, hey, the tournament's ending at midnight. We said it beforehand. No matter what happens, next blinds are 25000 50000 I mean, we have yeah. to get this tournament over. And then they'll understand, and they could have built their stack up to that point. And then it becomes bingo. It always becomes bingo no matter what you do, most tournaments anyway. So I would. There's no way to stop that at some point. Yeah, yeah it's stop. No matter how, how quickly it, it kicks in. Um, and I agree. If you're honest with folks that, you know, hey, we only have the charity hall until midnight, that's a good thing. But it's also nice, and I think that's what I was trying to get at, is to try to design a tournament where you don't have to, uh, at the end, panic. Because um, I played in a lot of charity tournaments where the tournament directors were in a full panic mode <laughs> that last 30, 45 minutes. Because, oh my God, we got to wrap up, and there's still 50 people in this thing. Uh, and that's when you start doing those ridiculous blind levels and, you know, blinds go up every five minutes now and they're doubling or quadrupling. And that's no fun for people either. So You could also make it one of those survivor tournaments where just say at midnight, whoever's still around, you get a ICM portion of the uh, prize pool. And, you, and you know, when yeah. the person with the most chips wins, you know, you could also do that. It doesn't have – so, and, I mean – And that's a good solution to it then, where you don't have to do the, the crazy stuff at the end now. Yeah. You know, now you just divide the – and it's and and doing it ICM too. It, it encourages people to, or it doesn't punish people for doing well at that point. Just, right, you're not just yeah. having to hang on and split the prize yeah. pool. You're actually getting what you deserve by what you earned chip chip wise. So, yeah, a lot of solutions. I, I, I think. Mean, yeah, my overall rule of thumb is charity tournaments exist for charities. They don't exist for players. So mm-hmm. you want to try to make them as good as you can to get more people in because that's how the charity makes more money. But never lose sight of why you're there. And so that's that's why I always thought the rebuys and add-ons are good. And as long as it's explained well at the beginning and um, 
then I think people are going to understand that and they'll be fine. And then, you know, and it's always good too. I think we get a lot of these comments too. It's good to clarify what's going to the charity and what's not. So there's no questions about it. So mm-hmm. that's why I like the rebuy add on model as well too. Cause now you can say a hundred percent of your rebuys and add ons will go to the charity. And then that, that should make people feel happy because they know now. And it also helps too. You know, you get, you get now you get to that add on and you're like you've got ten thousand units and you get another thousand for another twenty bucks or something. Normally you'd probably wouldn't do that, but you're like, Oh, I know that's all going to the charity. All right, fine. Here's another twenty. Yep. And then write it in your ledger so you can tell your tax man. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Find yourself in a situation at your favorite poker room or home game, not sure what the proper ruling should have been. Email us at podcastandanyupmagazine.com. We'll have Hollywood Casino Toledo director of poker Elliot Schechter tell you how he would have ruled. This week's prize is a setup of J-Design playing cards, the official playing cards of Annie Up Poker Cruises, available at ClassicPlayingCards.com. Comes from Isaac Brown. In a 1-3 no-limit hold'em game at a local poker club, a straddle is on and there are six callers. The dealer thinks the straddler checked his option, but before the dealer turns over the three flop cards in his palm, the straddler says he was wanting to raise and raises to 25 bucks. Another player asked if he saw what was on the flop before he made the raise, and he said he had not and all other players said they had not seen any of the cards. The dealer then lays out the flop, burns a card, and puts the turn face down, then burns another and puts the river face down. He says he will then shuffle up the cards and do a new flop, but the turn and river will remain the same should action progress to that point. Action then proceeds with everyone having the choice to call the $25 preflop raised by the straddler, and will then resume once the new flop is shown. My question is, why would he lay out the flop to begin with? If the issue is that there was the potential that a player had seen one of the cards, why would he not just shuffle the cards then? Since nobody has seen them, or potentially just one or two people could have, by simply shuffling the cards, you've eliminated any potential advantage someone could have had. It slowed down the action laying everything out like that and created a ton of confusion on the table on why we were playing in pre-flop action when a flop was on the table. By laying out the flop, he's shown everybody what they should have seen, and it will only create negative emotions in the players seeing what should have been. Uh, Elliot says, the flop is being replaced because it seems like the poker room staff believes one or more players may have both seen the flop and not yet acted on all of the pre-flop betting. If that is the case, the flop must be exposed so that all players yet to act will have the same information available to them as the other players that were able to bet with that information. Negative feelings about a situation are irrelevant. Fairness for all players and the betting is the primary concern. Allowing only one or two players the use of that information is too big of a disadvantage for the players that didn't have a chance to see those cards. Okay, so I don't disagree. I'm surprised you didn't say, I can't believe Elliot responded in six lines. (laughs) I know. Well, I was going to say a remarkably short (laughs) response. Um, I don't know about you, but... It does seem odd that he doesn't put those cards back in the shuffle them, though. Did he leave them out there, shuffle the rest of them, and then put another flop out and then took the other cards back? Or did he put those back in? I believe in? that's what happened, yeah. So the, that's bizarre. So, I believe, from my understanding from Isaac here, is that the dealer felt that someone might have seen the cards, the, the, the initial flop, before the betting action was down. And as Elliot says, that obviously gives that person an advantage, mm-hmm. uh, even though this card won't be the flop. Uh, um so that's why you need to expose them so everybody has the same information. 
And then because of this car destiny thing that we like, it looks like they put out the actual turn in river, so those out there, and then shuffled in the rest to deal out the new. All right, flop. so he did take the original flop and put it back in. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, oh, okay. Either. At first, I thought he like that, left yeah. the flop out there and then, and then whatever. But if you put the flop back in and shuffle that, then I have no problem with any of this. It makes sense because they have to all be able to see those cards to know what the cards were. Because if he didn't do that, the guy could have said, "Yeah, I saw him. It was a deuce of clubs, or, you know, or something." And then it wasn't a deuce of clubs; it's the ace of clubs, and you're going to hit your ace with your king kicker or something. So, I agree with showing all the cards. Uh, it's bizarre they showed all of the flop. Why wouldn't they just show the one that could only be possibly exposed? They were still in his hand. Well, I'm going to guess but, it's all going to go back in anyhow. So yeah, I guess yeah, I'm going to You're right. But yeah, uh, I agree with it. I don't, I don't yeah. think there's anything wrong with this. It's just, it is strange. I can imagine walking by the table as like a floor, and you yeah. look down, and you're like, what the, what is going on here? And then you have to hear it all. But um, pretty strange, pretty strange stuff. Another reason to make sure you're you're verbal with your actions, too. You know, the dealer thought he checked his options, so clearly he wasn't saying it, speaking up um, and doing the typical straddle raise. Hey, we get to complete O'Malley's move. Here comes part one. Hello, and welcome to another O'Malley's Move. I'm Malcolm O'Malley. This week we are seated in a $1-$2 Nolan and Hold'em casino cash game. We sat down with $200 and have around $275. We've been playing for roughly two hours, so we have a pretty good feel for the table and our opponents. The blinds post, and the under the gun makes the standard 5x raise to $10. This guy is a pretty solid player, but he c-bets entirely too often. And once he's taken an aggressive line, he doesn't know when to give in. He started the hand with around 250. It's folded to us in the cutoff, and we look down at the 10 of diamonds, 10 of clubs. This is a decent hand, perhaps a raising hand, but we're just going to make the call and see what our opponent does from here. The rest of the players get out of the way, and with about $20 in the pot, the flop is the queen of spades, queen of diamonds, tray of clubs. Immediately, Almost before the dealer was done dealing the flop, the end of the gun throws out three red chips for a bet of $15. I'm really not buying that he has ace-queen just yet. We make the call. There's an even $50 in the pot, and the turn is the nine of hearts. So close. Again, our opponent almost immediately bets out for $30. Why so fast? We think for a while and decide that we still are probably ahead. We call. There's one ten in the pot, and the river is the four of spades. Our opponent hesitates only slightly before counting out $75 and putting it into the pot. So, are queens and tens good here? What's the move? I'm calling. Uh, he might be playing queens tricky, uh, but it doesn't, just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and sure, he might have aces, kings, or jacks, but I think more often than not, we are good here. I'm calling. <laughs> I almost read your thing, but I said the same thing as you. <laughs> we, we write these out. Uh, nothing really changed throughout this hand, and our history with this player is that he likes to see bet and is stubborn. I think we are good. Likely ace-king, ace-jack, maybe we're against. If if he has ace-ace or queen or jack-jack, so be it. But I think we are good because he did exactly what we thought he would do with a hand that was premium but missed. All right, here comes part two. Hello again. He's bet every street fast. Almost too fast. His bets have all been appropriate. Almost too appropriate. And his line in this hand is logical. Almost 
too logical. You know, it seems like he hasn't stepped too far outside of his M.O. He raised pre-flop, c-bet the flop, and continued his aggression on the turn and river, never once letting up. This really feels like a hand that was strong pre-flop, but never quite made anything of itself. Ace-king, anyone? I think we're good here. We call. Our opponent sighs and turns over the ace of spades, king of spades, and we rake in the pot. Until next time, I'm Malcolm O'Malley saying sometimes it's good to vary your timing. This guy didn't, and it gave away the fact that he was just betting. I hope to see you on the felt. Yay. <laughs> that, that was some serious exuberance there, but... Yeah, I, you know, I just like when it all works out the way we thought, so yeah. <laughs> but then I thought I couldn't just say yay, so I, I, I went into the metagame here, so uh, what I'm going to add is uh, that this really comes down to how often we think we're beat and how often we think we're good, and it's very similar, I think, to the calculation you make with a river bet in a limit game, not a river beat. Let me fix that for you. Um, <laughs> in a limit game. Uh, so absent any compelling additional information, uh, I think we'll make more money in the long run by making these calls instead of folding them. Okay, I want you now to read your final thought as if you were reading the carrot book to children in the library. <laughs> the enormous carrot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this was a classic case of uh, using knowledge of a player and reading the situation for what it was. We have to call because we didn't believe we were beat on earlier streets, and that river changed nothing. So either we weren't, we were beat before, and we were wasting money, or we were ahead and we're making the right move. And why would we have called if if we didn't think we were ahead? So we're still ahead, and it was a good call. We win! Yay! Yay! All right, sign with the advancedpokertraining.com hand of the week. Send your hands or situations to podcast at antiupmagazine.com. If you haven't won something from us in the past year, you'll get a free membership to Advanced Poker Training, the world's number one poker training site. Our good friend Dr. Frank is in the house, and he's got a situation here for us. So uh, I'll do a lot of reading, and then I will shut up, and you do a lot of analyzing. How's that? Wow, situation. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, here's the parameters he gave us. It's the $210 buy-in weekly tournament, 40,000 chips, 30-minute levels, 175 entries, uh, 7 million chips in play. Wow, a lot of detail here. Uh, pays top, uh, pays the top 19, um, and those first uh, four uh, cashiers get between 500 and 600. Final table gets a minimum of 1,000, and first place pays over, just over 8,000. And uh, Frank says, my goal was to get deep into the prize pool. I was not interested in playing all day for a min cash. The first time in over 10 hours, my table broke uh, because we were finally down to the final two tables, so 20 players. So I'm sitting down at a new table. Uh, I know maybe one or two players from my old table, but they were not involved in this hand. Seek 5 said something about paying the bubble, but communication was difficult between the two tables, so nothing was decided. Uh, and a few minutes before the hand started, I gathered the following information. I had about 385,000 chips or bout average. Average was 350. Blinds were 10K, 20K with a 2K ante. Uh, so I had 19 big blinds with an M of less than 8. I was in seat 7, so I couldn't really see chip stacks in seats 3, 4, and 5. I had seats 6 and 8 covered. Seat 10 had an, oh my god, massive chip stack. I couldn't see, I couldn't really see any short stacks from where I was sitting. Uh, button was on seat three, seats four and five poster blinds of 10k, 20k, six seat folded. I'm in seat seven with ace king suited. I raised to 60k, seat eight calls, the big stack uh, folded. Hooray! Uh, folded around to seat five, it was a big blind. He hesitated, thought for a while, counted his chips, and then went all in. 
I asked for a count. He had 300,000. Back on me, I thought about this for a while. I was only seriously behind Ace, Ace, and King, King. If seat five had either of those, I believe he would have snapshoved. So I figured I was either way ahead or only slightly behind. Seat eight behind me had only called my initial race with a shorter stack, so I don't think he had Ace, Ace, or King, King either. I wanted to shut him out, so I moved all in. Seat eight said, I'm folding the best hand and toss Jack, Jack, face up in the muck. Seat five showed king queen offsuit. I was a big favorite, but a queen hit the turn and my stack was decimated. Down to eighty five thousand or four big blinds. I went out in the bubble two hands later with a seven. So two questions, although it looks like he lists three here. <laughs> Should I have shoved right away? He says King Queen probably folds, but Jack Jack told me he definitely would have called my shove. I would have lost anyway. Should I have just folded my ace king right away and taken some time to identify shorter stacks at my table, ensuring at least a min cash? That seems too weak to me. Should I have folded the seat fives all in and I had already raised the 60K? I would have been seriously short if I folded with only 16 big blinds left with the blinds coming at me in the next few hands. If I had won this pot, I would have had over 10% of the chips in play with 19 players left, and I'd be drinking an expensive bottle of wine right now. Go for it. Well, I, I, one, I think if Scott Long were answering this, he might actually consider folding ace-king because 16 big blinds is pretty decent you played for 10 hours and you said you didn't want to play all day for a min cash so then at the same time this could give you a big stack and and so i mean i i could go either way on this but i really think i'm probably calling when you had a caller already or 60 extra k in there and then this guy shoves and now i mean you've got ace king and like he said he's actually really only really in trouble against ace ace even kings he, he could flop an ace because that's what right. you know you're hoping for anyway in a race so um, I know you're hoping for the other card in a true race, but it, it, in this case, I think really, I probably get it all in with this guy. I don't shove free flop with it. I'm not going to shove, you know, I had almost 400,000. You know what I mean? 10 big blinds well, is 220. Yeah, it's 19 big blinds. There's more a way, a better way of looking at it because yeah. the number of chips is, irre- yeah. you know, doesn't really matter. Yeah, so I, almost 20 big blinds. I, I, I mean, I know some people like to shove at 20 big blinds. Um, you know, obviously, can't be results oriented. You still would have lost, so it didn't matter because a jack jack would have called you. Um, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I I think that uh, I, if I'm if I'm in that situation, I've got Ace King. I probably call because, like he said, if I have his thought process, he didn't want to play all day for a min cash, which right. is what he you know, which is where he's looking at right now. If he doesn't get involved in his hand, because now he's down to sixteen or fifteen big blinds, he's, he's going to have to shove. Right. So you might as well shove now with Ace King when you have a good hand and yeah, hope. Good hand. Yeah. Because yeah. this guy had aces, would he really shove? You know what I mean? And he didn't. He had King Queen. So if he had aces, he probably would have min raised you and try to keep the other guy in and then shoved on the flop and gotten more chips out of it. So I think it's the right call. I think you, it, most of the time, you're ahead in that situation. If not, you've got two overs. Uh, in this case, you were dominating him and just got unlucky. Um, so yeah, I probably do. I probably do just shove over the top there and watch the or call whatever it was the jack jack was already out of the way i'm not sure i can't remember the order of it but um i don't know i what, can you fold ace king there yeah well i i'm basing off the information he's giving me and uh, and you mentioned it a couple of times um was that you know he, he he wants a big payday here he doesn't want to walk out of here with 500 or 600 bucks so if that's my frame of mind, and I'm not normally that frame of mind. I know people love to say that I'm there to win, not to min cash, but I'm there to <laughs> maximize my value. So right. 
if depending on how the tournament goes, if a min cash now becomes more realistic to me than winning, then I am trying for that first and then hoping that to move on. So, you know, at this point, it's tough because he just sat down. He didn't know a lot of the chip stacks around. So it's tough to say how this table would have played out. But uh, we're not rich in chips right now. We were fairly comfortable with 19 big blinds, but, you know, a couple of orbits, we're, we're going to be in folder shove mode. So so if his plan was to go deep, this is a hand that I'm I'm going to the ball with. So, um, and I'll disagree with you. I would have shoved right away with this. Oh, you would have? Okay. Well, so yeah. that's because I, I know the new thing now. I don't play tournaments that much anymore, but the new thing is even 20 big blinds now you're shoving. Well, I think 15 is is the right number. 19 is probably a little too high. But the reason I would is because it's ace-king, so you don't want to get in this whole it's a drawing hand thing that we always talk about. But right. it is a hand that, it, that you're probably going to need some help to win with. So the help that I'm – the extent to that I can control it, because I can't control the five cards that are coming, is that I'm making a little bit of an overbet that's going to force probably half the table to consider their tournament life on lines they're going to call. So, um, you know, there's a decent chance with that bet that I could pick up uh, 30, uh, 50K, right? Mm-hmm. And the blinds and the um, and the annies. And that's a pretty nice bump right there without having to sweat anything. So that would be the reason I was shoving. And then, you know, if I get if I get some short stacks that are calling light, then I have a hand that I feel fairly confident with. Um, obviously, if the, the big stack wakes up with aces, then, well, it sucks. But <laughs> I'm not worried about that right now. So so I would have shoved right away and just seen what happened. Now, again, obviously, in this particular hand, as we've already mentioned, it wouldn't have mattered. The jacks would have called and we would have lost anyhow. But... But I would have started with that. But then since uh, I, I, instead I did the we did the three X here. Um, this and you got to think of what these guys are doing. So the guy that um, that shoved with King Queen, he he was already in folder shove mode, um, and he saw someone that just made a normal raise, not a shove. So he probably put us on being a little weaker and thought that this King Queen was a good chance to shove and we'd get us a fold, which. Some people might have folded at that point. So it wasn't a bad move. And then, of course, we called, but, and then we got lucky. But he got lucky hitting my queen and ended up working out well for him. Mm-hmm. But, but at that point, yeah, I mean, I have to shove on that now because they look down and, yeah, 16 big blinds. I, I still got some play, but that is, that's folder shove for me now. And, and you, you were right. If I'm going to fold and shove. Why would I not shove with ace king now? Because I don't know what else I'm going to get for the next eight hands. I could get an. an non-stop string of nine four offsuits and have to pick one at one point and hope that i can pick up the blinds here i've got ace king and got a short stack i know i'm not gonna be eliminated um you know obviously it ended up with with no chips left and we went out next uh two hands later but right but because you're already on the bubble there's a good chance that someone else could go out in the next hand and you're short they don't know the other table that you're down to two blinds or whatever exactly and that's the other big thing with uh, the short stacks here is that just because we've decided that we're not interested in min cash i promise you lots of other people at the table are waiting for that bubble to burst and so now if i get an ace king with 20 big blinds and i'm shoving right now most of them are going to fold unless they just happen to have aces or kings or queens or or the here the jacks possible that even you can get tens to fold there uh, if they're kind of short and waiting for the bubble to burst so it's a high percentage play of getting uh picking up the blinds and andy's here by shoving pre-flop 
Um, and we'll, did he have other questions in there at the end? I thought did we answer them already? I thought there was another Let's one. See. No. Should I shove right away? We already talked about that. Should I fold my ace king right away and take some time to identify? No, I'm definitely not folding. Definitely my not ace. folding, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it's, it, it is good to know some stuff about the other players, but you're not going to really know too much, I think, at this point, because we're on the bubble. So players' play changes dramatically yes, now. Yes, yes. Um, for right now. And then once the bubble bursts, then the, all that play, all that information you got is almost irrelevant now because now everybody's going to shift their gears, right? Um, so I, I'm not too worried about getting information there. Now, now it's a math problem. The rest of this term is a math problem for me. And... With 19 big blinds and, and people scared, that's I'm doing the math that I should shove here. Um, and then he asked, uh, should I should I uh, fold it to C5s all in, which we talked about. Yeah. Have we ever? Uh, you, you're the one that always brings it up that around 15 or 16 big blinds, even up to 20. Some people say it that that's kind of the new norm for shoving. And have have we ever really dissected why? Have people ever really told us why? either when we used to have pros on the show or, or the books that we've read. Is there a real reason why it's changed, why that's effective? Yeah, I think the bigger reason is that you're putting pressure on – you're putting more pressure on players now. I mean, I guess you could you could extrapolate that out and say, yeah, all right, now I'm down to 100 big blinds, so that's more pressure than 15 big blinds. Right. But, uh, I mean, that, that's been the justification I've heard from folks is that 10 big blinds isn't enough to push enough people off their hands anymore. People are more aggressive. People are more willing to call now. So you have to raise your prices. So okay. you raise okay. it to 15 big blinds. And now, and in most tournaments, 15 big blinds is a pretty significant number. I mean, again, I kind of, you know, chewed you away from saying there was 350,000 units because that doesn't really matter. Um, we're talking about big blinds. But, um, but yeah, it, at that point, and, you know, people, when people ask for a count, they don't ask for big blinds. Right, right. right. <laughs> Never had anybody say how many big blinds do they have. You ask how many chips, and then you assume the smart ones actually then do the calculation on big blinds in the mind. But you know, this is a two two ten buy-in tournament, so the players here are probably a little bit better than your normal fifty dollar buy-in tournament. But the players in the normal fifty dollar tournament aren't aren't doing that math, so they're like, oh man, hundred thousand, jeez, uh, that's a lot, and they fold. Right? How many times have you seen that? Yeah. E- even if. Hundred thousand represents four blinds. That's all they have left. So <laughs> it doesn't matter at that point, I don't think. So, um, but yeah, I think the idea is that you want to, you want people to say, "Wow, that's a lot," and it's really going to cripple me. And if you start the person that starts doing it earlier, wins. It, it's you know who shoots first in the uh, okay corral. Right, <laughs> right. All right. Well, I always love it when our uh, our friends send in stuff for us. It's uh, Frank. Frank has a good run there too. He he cashes a lot. He does. So yeah. He, he usually doesn't really make that many mistakes when it comes to these kind of decisions, and I don't think he did here either. I mean, I don't really fault the raise, and I definitely don't fault the call. So I mean, I could go either way on it, but at that point, like you said, or like I said too, the the shoving, you're gonna have to shove after this with another hand. So why not just keep that and go against somebody who looks at the situation and thought maybe you might be weaker than you were because you only raised instead of shoved. So. I don't know. I'm sorry he went on the bubble, but he cashes a lot more to make up for it. So, I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long. We'll see you at the table. Anti-Up is a production of antiupmagazine.com. Contact the show at podcast at antiupmagazine.com or call our hotline at 206-338-6344. If you'd like to advertise, send an email to advertising at antiupmagazine.com. 
or call 727-331-4335. Some music used in this episode comes courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network.